you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So the second Sunday in Advent, and we are confronted by the figure of John the Baptist, whereas last Sunday our Gospel reading came from a point quite late, In Jesus' life and ministry, the lectionary now has us back up chronologically to a point just before he emerges to begin that ministry. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is how Mark begins his gospel account. And as he tells his urgent and hurried story... Mark jumps straight to the emergence of John the Baptist. Mark has no nativity story. None of those genealogical lists after the fashion of Matthew and Luke. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so and on and on. And there's certainly nothing in Mark like the sophisticated opening theological prologue that John includes Mark just goes straight in. Now, given that the lectionary will have us working with this gospel for the coming year, it's important to notice Mark's particular way of telling the story. I'm drawn to something that the writer and musician Nick Cave wrote about the character of this gospel. He says, Mark writes with such breathless insistence such compulsive narrative intensity that one is reminded of a child recounting some amazing tale, piling fact upon fact as if the whole world depended on it, which, of course, to Mark, it did. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he writes, and then he quotes those ancient words, about a messenger coming, crying in the wilderness, preparing the way. And while Mark says that it is Isaiah whose words these are, it's in fact a conflation of both words from Isaiah and words from Malachi. But let's cut Mark some slack. He didn't have one of those doorstopper-sized concordances at hand. And he sure wasn't sitting there with a laptop equipped with a sophisticated Bible search program. Besides, setting this down in writing, that was the urgent thing. And isn't Isaiah, the prophet, whose voice most clearly sings in the background right through the story of Jesus from these moments at the beginning to the end when he's characterized as one like a suffering servant, a messenger to prepare the way. And who should appear but John, John the baptizer, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John clothed himself with a garment made of camel's hair, wore a leather belt round his waist, And he subsisted on a diet of locusts and wild honey. This is a symbolic thing he's doing. In a sense, it's even a a liturgical choice. 
The same way that I cover my 21st century clothing with ancient vestments, John is covering his first century self with garments associated with prophets from four and five and six centuries earlier. And he locates himself in the wilderness, outside of the city walls, far from both temple and palace, much as those ancient prophets had. They spoke into the temple and into the palace and into the city, but always from the margin. This word that John brings is not coming from established places, but clearly from those margins. He's a fierce figure, is John the baptizer, with his insistence on repentance, on turning around from old things and beginning anew, symbolized by plunging people into the waters of the River Jordan. In the more extended accounts offered by the other gospel writers, we see even more about just how uncompromising John can be particularly when he's faced by anyone he takes to be hypocritical or even less than fully embracing his message. He just dresses him down. John is convinced that the crisis is at hand and that when the one who is more powerful than I arrives, it would be best that you had your life in order. Do it now. Or at least get down on your knees in the sand, ready to beg for forgiveness. No compromise in John. Now, tonight we read the short passage about the baptizer from Mark's Gospel against the background of a reading from the prophet Isaiah, passage that includes these words. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Those words that are associated then with the baptizer. But what were the first words that you heard Elaine read aloud? The very first ones from the prophet tonight. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. It's from the opening of the 40th chapter of Isaiah. It actually marks the beginning of a whole new extended section that runs pretty much right to the end of the 66th chapter book. The nation has been broken, displaced, disoriented, and dislocated. It had fallen and fallen badly. The message of the writing prophets had always been that that sort of a fall had been occasioned by the people's own unfaithfulness, by their failure to be a Torah-shaped, Torah-informed covenant people, the people they'd been created to be. But they had tossed away the compass, so to speak, and as a result, they had found themselves badly, badly lost. It is to this people, in that situation, lost without a compass, dislocated and broken, that Isaiah now proclaims. And he begins by speaking, comfort, comfort my people. How can there possibly be comfort for that people? They've fallen so far. 
They've lost so much. As the prophet writes in this passage again tonight, all people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of a field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, gone. Surely the people are grass. We're nothing. We're like dead blooms, dry grass blowing in the wind. What, what future, what comfort can there possibly be for us now after all we've lost? Now, Walter Brueggemann cautions against making too light of a reading of that word comfort, hearing it as something like mere solace. Instead, Brueggemann writes... Comfort is a proclamation of a powerful intervention that creates new possibilities, God's intervention. And this offer of comfort is not based on the suitability or the qualifications of the people, but upon the resolve of God. That's what's signaled by the words, the grass withers, the flower fades, but... The word of our God will stand forever. The promise made, the resolve of our God will stand forever. Yes, people, you may be like grass and you may be blowing in the desert wind right now as a broken nation, but God has made a stubborn and abiding commitment to you and will see you through to newness. Really? Then, then, then there's hope. Really? There's something past our, our dislocation, our, 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 our disorientation? Yes, says Isaiah. Yes. And let me tell you what it will be like. God will feed the flock like a shepherd. God will gather the lambs in his arms. And that's you, people. God will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother's sheep. Now, the pure and pastoral gentleness of that imagery of God as being a shepherd holding fragile lambs close to his heart, leading the mother's sheep, that imagery is so striking Maybe doubly so when you read it the same night that you read of the fiery fierceness of John the Baptist. Repent. How can a prophet from 500 years earlier be so full of light and of, yes, comfort, while John remained so fierce? Well, the key to these gospel verses about John suggests David Jacobson. The key is the strange parallel, yet asymmetrical relationship between John and Jesus. Strangely parallel, yet asymmetrical. John expects a stronger one to come. His relationship to Jesus is subordinate because Jesus baptizes with spirit. And yet, in this apocalyptic narrative, 
anything goes. The unworthy one ends up doing the baptizing. They're on parallel courses. They are, according to Luke, kinsfolk, cousins, yet parallel and asymmetrical. John is convinced that when Jesus emerges, he is, he is a subordinate. He's just got to go down on his knees himself. If John might baptize with water, Jesus brings spirit, and yet there is an unexpected flip in the expected order. A great gospel reversal in which the one who considers himself unworthy even to stoop down and untie the cords on those sandals is called to get up and actually baptize him. It happens again and again. The first will be last. The last first. The one who wants to be first of all must be very last. The servant of all because... Why? Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The gospel is shot through with that great reversal, beginning with the emergence of John and the baptism of Jesus. So here, on this second Sunday in Advent, we do need to hear the call to turn around. That's what repent means turn around, reorder yourself. That's the force of the word. To be prepared always to start again and again and again. That's what I say every Sunday when we gather and we've, we've spent that quiet time speaking to God of our wounds and our sins and our failings and our brokenness. And I speak over you again and again and again. We're called back. We're called home. Always and ever honest with ourselves always willing to get back up, dust ourselves off, and try to start moving again. None of it, mind you, to earn God's favor or to earn God's mercy. Because as Isaiah says, it's not about us. We're grass. It's God's promise that abides, the promise to be faithful and most certainly can't be motivated out of fear. Anybody who went out to see John and was baptized simply because they were afraid wouldn't have lasted. No. That turnaround comes out of a posture of trust. For while we may be as fragile as the grass or as temporary as the petals of a flower, we have received the promise that even so are we being held like lambs in the arms of the shepherd. And that's the good news for this second Sunday in Advent. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.